What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Demp here. Thanks for tuning in. For those who this is relevant for, hope you're getting ready for a nice holiday week. If you celebrate Thanksgiving, if not, I just hope you're doing good. We've got a weird one for you this week. And like, what would Smart People Podcast be without the occasional weird yet curious and interesting topic? It's one of the things we pride ourselves on here. This week on the show, we're talking about pests. Really, more than that, we're talking about how an animal can be a pest or a friend or completely out of our conscious mind, depending on how it impacts us. For example, is a bear a pest? No, not until you're camping and it comes and steals all your food. Or in my case, as you'll hear, it walks through your backyard. I want to talk about this topic because this is the type of thing we we don't think about. Nobody's going to bring this into your mind unless you happen to catch it on a podcast or you happen to hear about our author this week. So again, just things to satisfy your curiosity. Our guest this week is Bethany Brookshire. Bethany is an award-winning science writer and journalist, but she's much more than that. She is an expert 
and an intellectual. She has her PhD in physiology and pharmacology from Wake Forest University School of Medicine and her undergrad degree in philosophy from William and Mary. Her brand new book is called Pests, How Humans Create Animal Villains. What a fascinating idea. Can't wait to bring this one to you. If you like what you hear, share with a friend. As you're sitting around the table with friends and family this week, for those of you that it's pertinent, bring up an interesting fact that you've learned from this episode and then tell them, hey, you should check out Smart People Podcast. You'll be better off for it. Let's get into it as we talk to Bethany Brookshire about her brand new book, Pests, How Humans Create Animal Villains. Enjoy. If you're listening right now, I want you to think about the most dangerous animal. What do you think the most dangerous animal is, right? And I went through this thought exercise. And I first went to mosquitoes, and then I realized, like, is that an animal? And that's when I stopped thinking. Okay. Mosquitoes are uh, animals. Bethany, okay, there mosquitoes we go. Okay, you're the PhD. All right. Okay. Um, you have this book, Pests, How Humans Create Animal Villains. And you answer that question. Tell us what the most dangerous animal is. So first, that's kind of a gotcha question. Like, mm-hmm. to be real. Aren't they all? Um, because it actually kind of depends on what you're asking. So in terms of the actual number of people killed by an animal in the world every year, the answer is hands down the mosquito. There's no okay, question. So I kind of want. Yeah, okay. they will absolutely... They will, they will screw you up. Um, uh, in terms of vertebrates, then we get into questions of things like, um, you know, it depends on where in the world you look. So for example, things that are super dangerous that people don't think are super dangerous, hippos, very, very, do not get on the wrong end of a hippo. They are I hope not. nasty, but also, uh, for example, Asian elephants, hugely dangerous, um, you know, more people, and certainly you get more deaths from things like elephants than you do from things like bears, for example. Um, but when we're thinking about like North America, okay, like North America, what encounter with an animal kills people? And then you have to get into, okay, are we dealing with like a domesticated animal or a not domesticated animal? Because if you want to go domesticated, I'm sorry, you guys, the answer dogs. is dogs. Gotta be a dog. Yeah, those bastards. I mean, I love them. I've had them. I have them, but still. <laughs> I love dogs. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but wild animal and in an actual straight up encounter with a wild animal, you might be like, oh my goodness, it must be wolves. It must be yeah, or a bear. coyotes. It must be bears. It is white-tailed deer. I don't get it. It is white-tailed deer. I don't get it. Yeah. Um, so the reason is not because deer are picking fights outside of bars, though I really wish they did. Like that would be <laughs> just about the best universe I could live in. Uh, no, the reason is we hit them with our cars. And in fact, we actually hit them uh, with our cars even more at this time of year. A new study yes. actually just came out um, showing that the switch from daylight saving time back to standard time in the fall, the week after that, there is a 16% spike in deer vehicle collisions. And like, that's not just like that. There's a couple reasons for it. It's because now all of your rush hour traffic is in the dark and who else likes the dark deer like the dark. And the other reason is the fallback to standard time is right in the middle of the white-tailed deer rut, which is mating season. So not only are is everyone driving at night, everyone's driving at night, and a whole bunch of horny deer are wandering the woods. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, <laughs> looking for love. Deer kill around 440 people a year. And you know what else I hate about deer <laughs> is um, they bring about the one pest that I, I in a second would eradicate. Like if I had godlike powers, the first pest I would eradicate would be the tick. Over the mosquito? Over the mosquito. Yes. Now, look, if I was really? trying to save lives, sure, mosquito. Okay. But I don't, I'm, this is going to sound really insensitive. I don't live in Africa. So the thing that really irks me are ticks and the deer and they're, they're bringing them into my world. <laughs> um, I, I feel that I am actually, I am participating right now in a clinical trial for a Lyme disease vaccine. Oh my gosh. I'm so jealous. You know, I, I heard that there used to be a Lyme vaccine and then they got sued and they decided it wasn't worth it from a profit perspective, even though the vaccine actually worked and had pretty good efficacy and fairly low side effects. So it was really a business problem as opposed to a science problem. The issue is actually there is still a Lyme disease vaccine for your dog. Mm hmm. So you can get your dog vaccinated for Lyme, which is good. Um, but yes, there was one. It was developed in the late 90s um, for Lyme disease in humans. It worked. Um, it worked decently well. Unfortunately, that was also the time at which they started the vaccine side effects reporting system. There we go. And mm. don't get me wrong. There were some side effects. There are a multitude of humans in the world. The multitude of humans has the multitude of immune systems. Like somebody is going to react badly to something at some time. Like there are literally people in this world who are allergic to corn. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, but so this did, there were some and the media got hold of it and anti-vax advocates got hold of it. They just went to town and lawsuits happened. The whole thing got expensive. Demand dropped like a rock. But I would say it's not so much a problem of business as it is a problem of misinformation. So listen, I, I wanted to have you on for a number of reasons. We'll get into them. One was this. We moved a couple of years ago onto this. We live like in a forest. There's about three and a half acres, mostly dense forest. I, since moving here, have really started hating pests far more than ever before. And you can probably imagine why. And let me just walk you through this. I wrote it down. In the first year of living here, I was stung three times by yellow jackets. I almost died from a black widow. Uh, I almost put my hand right on it when it was on the lawnmower. A snake crawled onto our balcony. A bear walked through my kid's sandbox. We've lost chickens to foxes and hawks. We lost our cat. No idea why. No idea what happened to her, except we found her and she was dead. And moles have destroyed my lawn. That's in one year, right? And so I say that because it's a fun way to start this conversation and I love nature, but like that is a little bit of a taste of kind of what your book talks about, right? We only deem them pests when they impede on our sanctum. So tell us a little bit about why that idea matters of what a pest is. Yeah, so the concept of pest is really important because I think people need to understand how much our relationships with the animals around us are the result of what we want and the result of what we believe about our environments and what our environments are for. Um, I think a lot of people 
we don't think about our relationship with the wildlife around us at all until it negatively impacts us. Like it just doesn't even occur to us. Um, and that is a privilege first off. Um, but also it means that when we do see it, we have this kind of seesaw of reaction. So often like the one seesaw is I'm going to feed it and it's going to be my friend and I'm going to have a Disney princess moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the last thing you say before you die to a mountain lion is here, kitty, kitty. Right, right, right. right. Um, and the other end is get it out. I need to kill it. It needs to go. Not only does it need to leave, I need to kill it. It needs to be wiped from the earth. Um, and I find that seesaw fascinating and i think it's something that we just many of us have people as people have never thought about this episode is brought to you by hymns we don't want to admit it but 52 percent of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction but like many health problems no one wants to talk about or take up hours of your day to deal with it that's why you need to check out hymns Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Hims offers an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED, and serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you, for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. No insurance is needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. You can even manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hims.com/smart. That's h i m s.com/smart for your personalized treatment options. One last time, hymns.com slash smart. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash twist for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscriptions plan. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members on average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash smart. One more time, that's rocketmoney.com slash smart. What you just said, we haven't thought about it. I was like, you're right, and we need to think about it. You and I were talking about this before I hit record. I think the more information, the, the different thought processes we have allow us to live more conscious and, and just better lives. 
And one of the things that jumped out to me and I was like, I have to talk about this. First time in my life I've ever thought about the phrase human nature, human nature. You mentioned this in your book. Why have we separated that phrase from the word nature? So there's several arguments as to where the separation has come from. Um, So, for example, there are science historians who I've talked to who say that it comes from the time around the Industrial Revolution. And we were finally able to really keep animals out. And when you're able to keep animals out in pest control, we refer to the building as the envelope, the the home envelope. Um, And when you can keep animals out from crossing that threshold, you begin to see yourself as apart from nature. Um, others argue, and I, I think I kind of agree that this whole thing kind of goes back to a dominion associated mindset that could potentially go back to the rise of pastoralism. Um, and in particular, the kind of pastoralism that was practiced by humans in the Levant, um, AKA the people who wrote the Bible. (laughs) I was going to say, you just said a bunch of words I don't understand. So if you could. (laughs) The people who wrote the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and when I say pastoralism, what I mean is herding. Okay, there Cows, we go. Jeeps, goats. <laughs> so herding yeah. things around the time of the Bible. Good, got yes. it. Or even before then, because that leads to a idea that these things are mine. These living things are mine. This house is mine. This land, as an agriculturalist, is mine. And anything that is not that is something else. It is something else, and it is something else that is potentially against me. And what I found fascinating, and the reason I kind of date this back to that idea, um, is that not every society thinks this way. It's not only a a Judeo-Christian worldview, but it is a Judeo-Christian worldview. Um, But there are other societies, so I... um, I got the chance to learn from a lot of people in indigenous groups in North America, but also um, from other areas. And one of the sources that I spoke to was talking to me about the Anishinaabe languages, which is a group of languages that characterize, I I may get this wrong. I want to say the Ojibwe, the Lakota, and and there's a language family you know, kind of how there are romance languages, there are Anishinaabe languages. Um, And so in these languages, um, there are two words for the word wolf. One of them is the one that predates contact with colonizing Europeans. The other is one that comes after that. And the one that comes before colonizing peoples, the word wolf translates to the wolf that does not live with us. After colonization, the word translates to the wolf that lives in the wilderness. So that separation, it's highlighting the separation. Yes. What you're seeing is there was no concept of wilderness. Right. Because wilderness implies that you don't live in it. Wilderness implies that there is an area where humans are not or do not belong. And this is just a fascinating concept to me. (laughs) It is. In fact, that's why I mentioned all the things that happened to me when I moved in. I remember calling my dad and being like, nature really is just trying to kill me. Like there was poison ivy. Nature's not trying to kill you? You moved in, man. 
Yeah, but I'm saying like it's trying to kill me while I'm here. You know what I mean? And and not on purpose, but just it's defense mechanisms. And yeah. it took me a while to be okay with it. First thought that went through my mind, kill every black widow. I've got little kids, right? And then you just realize the scale and you read about it and they try to avoid you and you just can't. And and, and I, I think it forces you to think about your place in the world and your impact on other creatures to your point. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's something that we all could stand to think about, you know, like we look at these animals and we think of them as though they are doing something to us. They're not, they're just like doing their thing. (laughs) Right. You just happen to be in the way with stuff that they enjoy. Going through this process and thinking about it at, at length, how has it shaped your thinking and how has it impacted how you behave in the world? Yeah. So I love this question. Um, One of the things that really came through to me reporting this book was just how much our concept of pest allows us to take offense and not like offense, though I guess like offense, but offense. Like when we use the phrase human wildlife conflict, we're starting a fight. When we use the phrase pest, we are saying we have a right to kill this animal. This animal no longer matters. I'm going to preface this by saying I am actually, I am not an animal rights activist. Sometimes you end up picking your own species because in the end, all humans will end up cracking and picking their own species (laughs) over the animal in question. Um, But I think there's a lot of room to change how we behave from offense to defense. For example, when I spend a lot of time talking about African elephants. The things that farmers use to try and keep African elephants away from their delicious, delicious crops are defensive. They are designed to drive the elephants off. They are designed to repel the elephants. They are designed to keep the elephants away. They are not designed to hunt down and kill the elephant because that is illegal. (laughs) And that's very different from, for example, the way we respond to coyotes, which involves things like snares and traps. Um, They do that for wolves also in some states. Um, And the way we respond to mice or rats, which involve a lot of traps, poisons, loads of poison, so much poison. And so I think there's room to change the way we think about it and kind of move from an offensive to a defensive stance. And the best example I have of me doing this in my own life is you'll probably remember from the introduction, I have this squirrel. His name is Kevin. So, and to be clear, Kevin, there's like 20 Kevins. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So Kevin eats my garden. And for years, I tried to dissuade him. I really did at one point prior to buying, to writing this book, consider buying a BB gun. And then when I was reporting this book, I was like, I can't, I can't do that. I can't. I have to practice what I preach. And so in the beginning of the book, I laid out some of the things that I had previously done to try to prevent Kevin from eating all of my tomatoes. And one of those things was I tried chicken wire. One, I tried um, cayenne pepper spray on the tomatoes. Uh, none of this worked. <laughs> this year, I actually did manage a full tomato harvest. There we go. You, you, you won. I did win. I will say anything I grew outside of the cage, um, I had a delicata squash and it was my first delicata squash. And guess who ate it? It was Kevin. Kevin. I hope it was tasty. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, I I did. I took the defense and did it take a lot of work? Yes. Was it worth it? Oh, yeah. 
And the best thing to do is I learned now about squirrel behavior. And I learned they have strong memories. So next year, I'm going to erect that cage before the green tomatoes happen. Because if you erect the cage before the tomatoes happen, they don't learn to associate that location with food. Wow. Hmm, learning is half the battle. Yeah. Well, in the defense, the idea of that, how often do we just go, let me get rid of it versus thinking about how can I defend? And I think you bring up a good point. It also comes down to effort and ultimately, and you refer to this a lot in the book, it comes down to human superiority, the, the feeling of power, the feeling of shaping our environment, which I would argue is a strength of ours. It's one of, if you're looking evolutionarily at, at everything trying to grow and evolve, it's allowed us to, right, our ingenuity, but at what cost and at what cost to other things? And you talk about that a lot. How do you think about this idea of how pests bring out this power drive in us? Yeah, that's one of the themes that I explored, um, the idea of dominion, the idea of power. And the thing about power is that people think of power as a good thing to have. And what they don't realize is how much it's based in fear and how when you feel you have power, you get entitled to what you think you deserve. And then when animals kind of come in and give you the finger, you feel vulnerable. And the first thing that happens when people feel vulnerable is they lash out in anger, right? We see this all the time. Like you're probably on Twitter. You see it. <laughs> yeah, it's a great point. <laughs> and if you stop seeing yourself as in control. I mean, you'll see this talked about a lot in, you know, mindfulness, <laughs> except the things you cannot change. Um, you know, if you stop being afraid of losing this iron grip, if you start to kind of accept that some things are going to happen, um, it can really change your perspective. And a lot of that concept of power and that concept of what it is that we deserve out of our environments comes out of that idea of dominion. And that idea of dominion, we're going back to the Bible again, I'm sorry. <laughs> Many people have read that passage in Genesis, and you shall have dominion over the creatures of the earth and the birds of the air and the fish in the sea. <laughs> when you have that dominion, you feel free to take control. And that gives you that sense of kind of like power and the idea that the world, we deserve the world to change to suit our needs. We deserve that. And the thing is, that's not universal. <laughs> that is not a universal thing. I mean, yes, our power has led us to develop really cool things like podcasting, but there are many other people on this planet living in very different ways, or even living in very similar ways with different belief systems. Um, you don't have to believe that you are in charge. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Do you think that, 
as you mentioned, the Judeo-Christian philosophy is what drives a lot of our relationship with wildlife, specifically pests. And if that's true, I can't imagine there's a civilization on Earth or a group of people on Earth that do no offensive harm to animals. So do I think it is the number one thing? No, Mm. I don't. There's lots of, I mean, for example, the Romans and the Greeks prior to the onset of Christianity were absolutely living in a dominion associated way. Okay, good point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go. That's a great (laughs) great Um, So, you know, there are, and and there are plenty of other cultures around the world that are not Christian um, and that have performed dominion associated things. So for example, I talk about in the book, the uh, move in communist China to eradicate every single sparrow in the country, <laughs> which was dark, man, that was, that was dark. I do not think that it is. I think that it doesn't help. <laughs> How's that? Yeah, that's um, fair. And certainly I would say that, no, there is no group of people on the planet that manages to live like, um, there's a, a group in India, a religious group called the Jain, um, who try to have absolutely no negative impact on the world around them, such to the point that they like won't squish ants and stuff. It's a pretty ancient belief system. Uh, but nobody goes through life unable to do that. However, no species goes through life unable to do that. Yeah, right. right. Like, every species is part of a web. It is part of an ecosystem. And there are ways to be part of that ecosystem that are sustainable and that exist within that ecosystem's balance, right? And then there, there's us. <laughs> or there are, you know, for example, invasive species that we often introduce that come in and the ecosystem is drastically upset. Sometimes a new balance is achieved, sometimes it's not. I would, so yeah, I would say that probably... We, we cannot go through the world without, you know, negatively impacting some things. A lot of people might be sitting here going, but we're top of the food chain and that's how evolution works, right? Like we are there because of our ability to control and to take domain. But your point on balance, I think, is the most critical aspect which is due to that ability to control, we also have the ability to lead to our own demise due to our power-hungry nature and our want for control. And one of the things I've always thought of is, you know, if, if humans were eradicated from the planet, the earth would go on. It would probably, from a wildlife perspective, be far more prosperous. And so we are really the only ones that can change the course of nature. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that is important is that we can change. But I did actually want to go back to something that you said earlier, which is the whole idea that humans are the top of the food chain. Oh, you can't refute that. Come on. Oh, my take, goodness. Yes, take I can. Your PhD and convince me. <laughs> OK, so first of all, we say top of the food chain like the buck stops with us. What happens when you die? Bugs eat me. Uh-huh. Who's top now? The bugs. Yes. We are part of the And the bacteria the and the fungi. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, the problem is that we do teach this idea of a food chain. And 
Also, I mean, that's like showing our age because we don't actually teach that anymore. We teach food webs instead of food Good. chains. That's better. Yeah. Uh, so we teach food right? webs instead of food chains Cool. Um, at, to help people understand that like, also top is not always better. <laughs> like when we say top, we start to think, oh, that must mean best. But it doesn't. It just means top. <laughs> or in this case, there is no top. It's the circle of life. <laughs> right. No, right? that's a really, you know, yeah, that's fair. Every animal plays its part and feeds something else eventually. I like that. And look, now what they're talking about even, which is a fascinating concept to get into, is we're actually just meat suits for bacteria, essentially. Right. And I love <laughs> yes that idea. No. What if they just control us entirely? We don't I don't know. They don't control us entirely. It's more of a partnership. Yeah. Um, I would say, I mean, first of all, we are not as outnumbered by our bacteria as you would think. Oh, um, really? There was like this idea. Oh, yeah. There was this idea that like we were outnumbered by like, what was it like 10 to 1? We had 10 times more bacteria. Yeah, that was actually disproved in like a 2016 study that actually showed the ratio is more like 1 to 1. Like so, cellularly? Is that yeah, what cellularly. it is? Okay, cool. Yeah. So it's really huh. more of a partnership. See, learn something new every day. All right, here's what I want to do at the last 15 minutes we have. I want to ask you um, your favorite parts of this book, your favorite parts of this journey, right? For those listening going, this makes sense. I like the philosophical approach. One thing I don't want to discount is the joy in which you can read this book. It's my favorite type to read. In fact, I noticed on the back, Mary Roach was one of the first people to give you praise. And like, she's one of my favorite authors for that exact reason. Love so wanna, her. Yeah. So I want to ask her. you from your perspective as the author, what were some things you learned, some anecdotes that you think people just need to know? There's so many good parts. There's so many good parts. Best. So probably some of the parts that I think most other people would want to do <laughs> <laughs> um, would be when I got to go out and um, work with uh, black bears, hibernating black bears. Um, and this is actually a thing that didn't make it into the book. Wildlife biologists go out and they dart black bears. And I was doing this in particular in Western Pennsylvania. Um, they dart black bears and they dart particularly uh, denning mothers. Okay. And then they assess her health and stuff while she's out. And they also assess like the health of the babies and like all this kind of stuff. And so you hike out into the woods and they, the the bear has like a, a radio collar on. So you follow the radio collar and shoot. Um, and uh, they dart and hopefully you dart the bear while the bear's still in the den. That is the goal. The reality is that black bears do not deeply hibernate. They just kind of doze. <laughs> and so usually there's somebody with a long pole with the dart. And then there's like four other dudes with guns. <laughs> and the guns also have darts. <laughs> um, and so they're to catch it if she runs. <laughs> um, and often she does run. Um, and so usually the people who are the clueless journalists hanging back have to wait until the bear is, is out because otherwise it is dangerous. Um, anyway, so we go in there and the bear is asleep and you can, you touch them and you can smell them and they feel like German shepherds. Wow. That doesn't <laughs> but the surprise best me. Part, the best part is that baby bears cannot, are not, they're not asleep. The baby bears are not tranquilized. They cannot regulate their own body temperature. So somebody has to keep them warm, which means that you have to store a baby bear in your coat. No. Well, the scientist, yes. How do I get this job? Why don't they teach you about this in elementary school? We'd have a lot more scientists. Seriously. So I got to snuggle a baby bear. No. 
inside my coat. And what's wild, first of all, they have these giant claws. Yeah. Huge claws. And it's partially because once spring comes, mom's going to go out and get some food, right? Um, She stores the babies up a tree, usually like a pine tree or something. And so those claws are climbing claws. (laughs) And basically she just stores them up there and goes and does her thing, comes back. Um, And so they've got these huge claws. But also the other thing that was amazing, well, it was incredibly cute. Um, but also, you know how when you hold a human baby, you just kind of bounce a little? Yeah. You do the same. Turns out when you hold a baby bear. You do the same, right? <laughs> I didn't know how I'd react, but the next thing I know I'm doing this. I would. You know, I just came up. Here's a business idea that will save wildlife. Like charge for that experience. I will pay to go hold a baby bear. They're doing it anyways. Let some people tag along. Um, usually they actually, um, have people. So often the bears are denning on private property. Um, and so they will invite the people whose property it is. Wow. Because like you're allowing a bunch of wildlife biologists on your land (laughs) with all of their stuff. Um, so usually they invite people and often, uh, a couple of times I've been out and like those fam, the family who owns the land invites their family and then they invite their friends and then it's like 40 people. (laughs) Tell, so what, um, I don't think a lot of people would consider a black bear a pest. How did that, how did that, um, play a role? I mean, I could see how it is. So was that the angle or was there a sidebar there? So, I mean, that's kind of, I think of black bears, not as pests, but as animals that could become pests. Right. Um, so as you mentioned, you had a bear wandering through your backyard. Yeah. And it what, was a pest at that think? moment. It was a pest yeah. at that moment. We now have a fence. Not that that scared. would necessarily help, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. Were you scared? I wasn't home. <laughs> I was okay. traveling and my wife took a picture of it, which that made me scared because in truth, it walked straight through our kid's sandbox, which is only about 10 by 10. So, you know, and I thought, I mean, what if the kid was there? Like it is baffling. So yes. Um, well, first of all, just be glad it didn't poop in the sandbox. Mm, that was also nice. I mean, the interesting thing about bears is so bear numbers on the East Coast in particular, um, but also, you know, across the country went like took a nosedive um, in the 18 and 1900s because we hunted them all. (laughs) We're real good at that. Um, And then they've started to come back. Um, And in part, a lot of that is just really good habitat. So, for example, in Colorado, like that is a plus prime bear habitat. It is so good. That is amazing. On the East Coast, bears are actually still, populations are still increasing. Um, And in fact, um, I just saw it came across my feed the other day. Uh, New Jersey is thinking of reinstituting a bear hunt. Really? um, For the first time in a while. Oh, yeah. Uh, To try and curb the population numbers. And it's not because they're just completely overrun with bears. It's because New Jersey is full of people. And when people and bears mix... They become pests. Um, Well, and but why do they become pests? And this is something that I was thinking about a lot. And the reason is, why was that bear in your backyard? What was it doing? No, it was was going somewhere. Yeah, it was going somewhere. If it was just walking through, that's fine. But a lot of times, especially in the summer and fall, a bear comes into your backyard and you have a bird feeder. For food. Oh, I see. Yep. Yep. Yeah. A bird feeder is 8,000 calories of delicious, delicious protein. (laughs) And like a bear preparing for hibernation needs 20,000 calories a day. The rock could never. Um, And I think that's 
something we don't think about, you know, and we see the bear get in the bird feeder and we're like, oh man. So we start taking the bird feeder down at night, but the bear's been there. Bears have real good memories. And so the bear's going to come back. And if it can't get the bird feeder at night, it's going to come and get it during the day. And then, you know, people are going to get annoyed by that. They'll take down the bird feeder altogether. But by then, too late, it knows there's food there. And it's going to start hunting around for other food near your house. When was the last time you cleaned your grill? Because let me tell you, burned drippings on a grill, delicious. Bears are not picky eaters. That's a good point. I think there's that drip pan on my grill. I don't know if I've ever cleaned it. So there's clean some, some good calories right there, you know? Please clean that. Well, and you know... And this is what, and I, I want to ask you a question here, you know, our last question here coming up, but this is what I enjoy about it. Number one, on the front of your book, you have different animals and many of which we wouldn't consider pests. And I think it's a, um, a better way for all of us to just think about the impact that things have when they're in our consciousness versus when they're not. So that deer, you don't think about until it's through your windshield, but the same about that, uh, that anxiety you have that's not there until it it rears its ugly head and renders you, you know, bedridden for a week. And I just think that taking these learnings and these thought processes and putting them in, in a way that's palatable and allows us to think more worldly is important. So I want to end with this, which is what would you hope somebody gains when reading this book? I want people to think about it. Because so much of when we react to an animal and when we call it a pest is a reaction. It is a reaction in the moment because we haven't given these things thought. And I want people to think and grapple with these ideas and start to maybe think of themselves not as in charge of their little piece of property, but as a resident in an ecosystem where other things live. Because when you start thinking of yourself as part of something, and something that isn't just humans, it's humans and squirrels and birds and opossums and bears. And when you start thinking of those animals as actually belonging there, your entire calculus changes. What you come to expect changes. What you come to accept changes. And you're more capable of changing your behavior. Because you no longer see these animals as being interlopers that are out to do, your, do you harm, right? They are animals that live there. And if you're going to be a good neighbor, lock up your trash. <laughs> yes. Right. I love the way you put that. And if I could just interject, it would be, if this thinking line of thinking is interesting, you also consider it as it relates to your landscaping. Like, you know, we don't need to be dumping hundreds of pounds of weed killer on our lawns. Uh, it's just so gross. I, I mean, I live down a slope and after my house is like a drain, which goes into a local waterway. Right. But I used to imagine how much of the water that comes down is just laden with things. Right. Because we think we have to have domain over that. And so it is a more holistic line of thinking. And I think you do a great job talking about it in this book. So again, the book is Pests, How Humans Create Animal Villains. By the time you listen to this, it's like right now. It's coming out right now, basically. Tell us where we can find you, where we can read more about you and kind of the things you do there that we could learn about. Yeah, um, sure. So I am a science journalist and an author. Uh, you can find me at my website, bethanybrookshire.com. Um, you can also find me on Twitter, if that still exists by the time. This, <laughs> Not if Elon has anything to say airs. about it. 
<laughs> uh, you can find me. I'm at B-E-E Brookshire on Twitter. I am also on Mastodon. I am also um, on Facebook. I have a public page on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on all of the things. Um, and so you can also find my writing. I'm a freelancer. So I write for all sorts of outlets, including, for example, like the New York Times, the Atlantic, Washington Post, Slate, Science News Magazine. Um, I'm also a podcaster. My podcast is called Science for the People, uh, which is exactly what it says on the tin. Um, and yeah, that's where you can find me. This week's guest was Bethany Brookshire. The episode was hosted, as always, by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Bethany's book, Pests, How Humans Create Animal Villains, will be available on December 6th, wherever books are sold. All right, let's jump into the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.